A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles. Ivan III of Russia, Novgorod and the Russo-Lithuanian Wars, 1500-1503. This is the second part of a two-part series. Last week, I described the growth of Muscovy under Ivan III the Great, which culminated in 1477 in the capture of the city of Novgorod. The annexation of Novgorod, Tver and Ryazan gave Muscovy a common frontier with Lithuania and more contact with the West. Now that the Grand Princes had thrown off the yoke of the Tatars and become predominant power of northeastern Russia, their prestige was greatly increased. Ivan received diplomatic approaches from other European leaders, such as the King of Hungary and the Holy Roman Emperor. Diplomatic exchanges with Moscow were, however, hindered by the long and dangerous journeys which envoys had to make. One of Ivan's greatest diplomatic achievements was his marriage to Sofia Periologa, the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, Constantine XI. The marriage tie with the Byzantines was exploited later to promote the idea of Moscow as the successor Byzantium, as the third Rome, with Rome as the first and Constantinople as the second Rome. The focus of Ivan III's final years was a war against Lithuania. In fact, his campaign against the duchy can be seen as a culmination of Ivan's many years of steady territorial aggrandizement. Although Lithuania had long been a powerful rival to Moscow, it was a tempting target. Many of its subjects spoke some variety of East Slavic and professed the Eastern Orthodox faith. Moreover, the central government in Vilnius had little control over its more remote corners, including the West Russian lands along the border with Muscovy. Border skirmishes began in 1478, the year Ivan III asserted his sovereignty over Novgorod. Muscovite attacks on Lithuanian lands and subjects increased in intensity during the next ten years, though to what extent they were part of an organised campaign or independent actions by local leaders is unknown for sure. In his replies to Casimir's protest, Ivan always indignantly denied all knowledge and responsibility. He also countered with complaints about the treatment of his merchants in Lithuania. Certainly along the frontier, Ivan worked to convince the Russian princes and nobles who lived on the Lithuanian side to change their allegiance, and from the 1470s, some decided to accept the invitation. One motivation may have been a wish to join their co-religionists instead of remain under Casimir, who was Catholic. 
Another may be that since Casimir seemed unable to defend them against attacks, they would be more secure under the protection of Ivan. When they defected to Moscow, they often brought with them their estates, their armed bands and their peasants, effectively resulting in the movement of the Muscovite frontier further to the west. When Casimir died in June 1492, one son, Jan Olabracht, succeeded to the throne of Poland, while another son, Alexander, became Grand Prince of Lithuania. Ivan appeared to try and take advantage of Lithuanian weakness at this moment by intensifying his attacks. Many among the Lithuanian nobility were concerned that Alexander was too young and inexperienced to cope with the challenges of mounting aggression from Muscovy. Already in 1494, Alexander was compelled into signing a treaty with Ivan in which he conceded the recognition of several border territories in an attempt to secure a peace. Ian Gray writes that the treaty demonstrates Ivan's practice of gradual but remorseless achievement of his goals, since in his highs it was merely the first step in his campaign. Alexander tried to obtain troops and money from Poland for a campaign, but without success. Realising they were unlikely to be able to halt this movement militarily, the Lithuanian nobility sought a marriage tie between Russia and Lithuania. After tense negotiations, a marriage took place between Alexander and Ivan's daughter, Elena. One condition of the union insisted on by Ivan was that no pressure would be applied on Elena to convert to Catholicism. The reasons for Ivan's concern for Elena's orthodoxy can only be surmised. Ian Gray is of the opinion that Ivan already had in mind at the time of the wedding to make the issue of his daughter's freedom of worship a potential pretext for war. He also seemed to expect his daughter to act as a source of information concerning the policies of her husband and his court, and to influence him in the interest of her father's policies. Elena, however, clearly respected and even came to love Alexander, and was not prepared to spy on him or to influence him at the behest of a father who saw in her nothing more than an instrument of his policy. She never complained of Catholic pressure as her father had expected, and even instructed her to do. For the next six years, Ivan was occupied by conflict with Sweden in the northwest and the Khanate of Kazan in the southeast. Then, in spring 1500, trouble broke out again between Muscovy and Lithuania, beginning with a fresh wave of defections of Orthodox orders on the Lithuanian side of the frontier to the Grand Prince. In accepting these princes as his subjects, Ivan was breaking his 1494 agreement with Alexander, which had clearly specified that neither side would accept defectors from each other's territories. Ivan, nevertheless, showed no hesitation at accepting these new subjects. Claiming as justification their complaints of religious persecution, Ivan declared war on Lithuania, and in May 1500 he sent three considerable armies to invade the duchy. The Russian forces at first met little resistance. Alexander seemed paralysed during these opening stages of the campaign, unsure as to how to confront such an overwhelming force. After hearing news of Russian gains, he sent his army to defend the city of Smolensk, and on the 14th of July, 1500, the Russian and Lithuanian armies joined in battle. The fighting was intense, and casualties heavy on both sides, but the Russians emerged as decisive victors. The Lithuanian army was destroyed, and all who did not perish on the field were taken prisoner. During the same months, Lithuania also suffered from Tatar invasions. 
deliberately coinciding with the Vans War, the Khan of Crimea, Mini Jirai, ordered repeated raids deep into the southern parts of Lithuania and Poland, plundering towns and devastating the land. Alexander desperately tried to find allies to counter the Russian aggression, with only one success, an alliance with the Livonian Knights. In 1501, Ivan ordered a second wave of attacks on Lithuanian territory, again resulting in a decisive victory for the Russians. The fighting was long and severe, but the Muscovite troops ended by completely crushing the Lithuanians, killing 7,000 and taking many prisoners. The only setback Ivan had was a defeat on the 27th of August against an army of the master of the Livonian order, von Plettenberg. Ivan took immediate action against the Livonians, since if joined with the Lithuanian army, they could have amounted to a serious threat to his plans. So in November 1501, he dispatched a strong force comprising troops from Moscow, Novgorod, Tver and Peskov, supported by a Tatar contingent against the Livonians. The two sides met near Dorpat, modern-day Tartu in Estonia. Again, fighting was fierce and the order made full use of their artillery but they were unable to withstand the much larger Russian army and suffered a crushing defeat. Von Plettenberg, with his army annihilated, was no longer a serious danger to Muscovy. Meanwhile, Alexander renewed attempts to form a military alliance with the Golden Horde, and this time Khan Ahmed accepted and agreed to invade Moscow. Ivan was forced to divert troops to defend Muscovy, and they successfully repelled the Tatar attack. In 1502, the third year of the Russo-Lithuanian War, Ivan planned another large-scale campaign. His goal was the capture of Smolensk, a city which dominated the extensive West Russian territories. An army set out from Moscow on the 14th of July, and advancing rapidly westwards, laid siege to Smolensk. Meanwhile, in the north, around Novgorod and Peskov, Ivan posted another strong army with instructions to engage any Lithuanian forces that might be sent to help the besieged garrison Smolensk. For his main support in his campaign, though, Ivan planned to link up with a massive army of Crimean Tatars who invaded southern Lithuania at the same time. Ivan was confident of being able to capture Smolensk with such a massing of armies, attacking from different directions. In the event, however, not everything went to plan. The garrison and people of Smolensk defended their city with great courage, seeing off repeated assaults against its walls and gates. The Livonians caused enough trouble in the north to divert the attentions of Moscow's northern army. And the huge Tatar army, instead of linking up with the Russians, swept across Galicia, Volhynia and southern Poland, where they caused great devastation. The reason, they subsequently explained, was that they were anxious to avoid the heavily wooded regions of the north, a terrain that the Tatar steppe warriors were unaccustomed to. The Russians ravaged the land surrounding Smolensk, but they could not take the city, and after a siege of three months, withdrew and returned to Moscow. Also separately, in 1502, an army of Crimean Tatars annihilated an army of Khan Ahmed. Thus the Golden Horde, which had dominated the Russian lands for more than two centuries, passed almost completely from the scene. Alexander was keen to make peace with Ivan, for he feared losing not only Smolensk, but the whole of Kievan Rus, which Ivan was claiming as part of his patrimony. 
As part of the negotiations, the Lithuanians brought a letter from Duchess Elena, imploring her father to end the war. Ivan's claims that Elena was being compelled to convert to Catholicism were an important part of his war propaganda, but in her letter she firmly denied that she had suffered persecution in any form, but worshipped freely in her faith. In every particular, she wrote her husband had observed the terms of the 1494 treaty, and not he but her father, Ivan, was to blame for the war. In every particular, she wrote her husband had observed the terms of the 1494 treaty, and not he but her father, Ivan, was to blame for the war. Her letter was a major diplomatic reverse for Ivan, but he refused point-blank to accept her protestations, because they ran contrary to his policy. As Ian Gray puts it, Ivan's attitude that any perfidy was permissible so long as it advanced the national interest may have been morally unjustifiable, but it was certainly productive of results. In March 1503, a truce was agreed between Alexander and Ivan to last six years, after which time the two sides would negotiate a permanent peace. This suited Ivan as the gains he had made in the recent campaigns effectively became permanent. Alexander must have been distressed, but certainly had the intention of accepting the truce as a permanent agreement. And for Ivan, it was no more than a convenient break in hostilities. As it happened, both leaders died before they could embark on the next stage of the struggle. From the Russo-Lithuanian War of 1500 to 1503, it was Grand Prince Ivan III who had come out as the clear victor. He had conquered one-third of Lithuania, and neither he nor his successors would ever relinquish these lands. Under the reign of Ivan's son and successor, Vasily III, war broke out with Lithuania again. After repeated Russian assaults, Smolensk was finally captured in 1514, rounding out Muscovy's gains on the Western Front. Soon after Smolensk fell, a Lithuanian victory at the Battle of Orsha stopped the Russian advance. In 1522, a truce was concluded which established the Muscovite-Lithuanian frontier for the rest of the 16th century. The main legacy of Ivan III is both considerable territorial expansion and the creation of an effective military administration. Vasily III successfully picked off where his father left, not only capturing Smolensk but asserting his authority in Peskov in 1510. By the time Vasily III died in 1533, the Principality of Muscovy was three times larger than when his father, Ivan III, had ascended to the throne in 1462. It was now clear that throughout the north and east of Russia, power, prestige and wealth could only reasonably be sought in Moscow. Muscovy had been transformed from an ambitious principality to, in every sense, a major European power. An important element of the new kingdom was the formation of a group identity centred on Moscow, whose rulers claimed the inheritance of Kievan Rus. Essential to this were the two institutions of Grand Prince and the Orthodox Church, which had been protected, even fostered by the Mongols, during their time of overlordship. Sergei Plokhy, in his book The Origins of the Slavic Nations, quotes the historian Thomas S. Noonan, who had the following to say about the nature of Muscovite identity in the 14th and 15th centuries. 
Quote, one of the major elements in the formation of a Muscovite state was the success of the Muscovite Grand Princes in creating a national Muscovite identity, and in imposing this new identity on the conquered peoples of the other Rus lands. Those who came under Muscovite control were not just subjects who had obligations to the Muscovite overlords. They were gradually assimilated into an emergent imperial Muscovite society and forced to assume a new identity. Residents of Novgorod, Tver and Ryazan slowly but surely became Muscovites. End quote. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. It's always great to hear from you, either on Facebook or Twitter, or the blog www.historyeurope.net, or writing to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. Please join me in the next set of episodes where I talk about the Portuguese navigation around the continent of Africa, the arrival in the Indian Ocean, and the key naval battle of Dieu of 1509. Until then, Happy New Year, and goodbye.